So we're starting our first series this morning as a church, and I got to tell you, I felt some pressure about uh, starting this first series, because firsts are important, and someday down in the future, you know, long in the future, long after I'm dead and gone, you know, some historian of City Church is going to go back, and he's going to look at what the first series of City Church was, and he might even listen to it or something, and so I felt this pressure that I had to make sure that I got this right. So I chose a passage that I think is perfect for uh, starting a church. I really do. Uh, because really for two reasons. One is that we get to hear from Jesus himself. We get to hear his own creative words as he describes the heart of the Christian faith. And then the other reason I think it's so, this is a perfect series to start with, is I think it's good for those of you who might consider yourselves to be sort of curious outsiders to Christianity. But I think it also it's really good for those of you who think of yourselves as established insiders to Christianity. I think both groups, it's going to flip your understanding of what the Christian faith is all about. I think it's going to just flip it on its head. And so if you would, this, this uh, passage that we're going to look at, we're going to be in, the, in it for the next five weeks. It's Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 15. You might have it electronically, uh, you know, like on an iPad, an iPhone, whatever. You can turn there, or maybe you have, like I do, uh, an old school copy of the Bible. Turn to Luke chapter 15. This, story, this series is going to be called, we're going to call this, The Story of the Missing Son. And as I said, we're going to be in it for the next five weeks. And I just want you to know, as we get ready to look at this, I want you to know some of my influences as I've studied this, I've, I've, I've studied it many times over the years, so that's influenced me. Um, commentators from every denominational background have influenced me as I've studied this passage. Uh, a Reformed Presbyterian by the name of Tim Keller has influenced me as I've studied this passage. A Dutch Reformed, excuse me, a Dutch Catholic priest by the name of Henri Nouwen, who wrote a book on this particular passage, has influenced me as well. And so what I'm trying, to, uh, I'm trying to say to you is that uh, my understanding of this, uh, of this passage comes from a broad range of Christian backgrounds. So I think I've kind of covered the gamut uh, in, the, uh, in my understanding of this passage. We're going to read the passage together starting at verse 1, and uh, then we will make some comments at it, uh, about it after we uh, start reading it. Luke chapter 15, let's begin reading at verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear him, Jesus, that is. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man, they're referring to Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. And let me just say something for a moment. There's actually three stories that Jesus tells here. We're going to focus on the last one. All three stories have something in common, though. They're all about something or someone being lost and then being found. Let's go down. Let's skip down to verse 11. Jesus continued. He said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property uh, between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out, I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he said, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost. Here we go. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25, Meanwhile, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Here's this party going on. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you, fill, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father, said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was, read those with me, he was lost and is found. All right. I realize that most of you know this uh, story by a different name. You guys know this story as some of you knew, as the parable of the prodigal son, right? Okay, I just want you to know that, that that's not an inspired uh, name. Jesus didn't give it that name, so I feel some freedom in changing the title of it. And I think the title that I've given it, The Story of the Missing Son, I think it, uh, I think it better highlights a little twist that's in the story, a surprise twist that's in the story that I'm not going to tell you about this week. I won't tell you about till later in the series, but it's a really cool twist. And that's right. I'm using manipulation right now to get you to come back. And that's all right. Who cares? Right. I want to start, we're going to be in this for five weeks, but what I want to do today, I just want to start by taking like a a 30,000 foot perspective of this particular passage. I just want to get an overview of it. Okay. I just kind of want to introduce you to it. And let me just start with the most basic observation. Here's the most basic observation. There are two sons in the story. You're supposed to go, wow, that's profound, Jeff. That's what what I came here for this morning. That's what I got up this morning to come here for, is to hear that kind of profound observation. Um, There's a a reason I make this point. There's a younger son, there's an older son. And the reason that I make that point is because most interpretations of this particular passage miss the older son completely. Completely. And I want you to see him because he's really, and I'll tell you, I'll just tell you, he is really the focus of the story. By the way, how many of you, how many of you, raise your hand if you're like the oldest kid in your family, raise your hand. Okay, and those of you who are youngest kids in a family, raise your hand. All right, I don't care about the middle, uh, it, you know, middle. <laughs> and you're like, welcome to the story of my life. No. <laughs> I realize that we are painting with very broad brush strokes here, but it is amazing, isn't it, how accurate that Jesus gets the identities of the kids in this particular story. This is how a lot of sibling uh, identities go in families. Not every family, but many. The oldest is sort of the responsible caretaker of the family, and then the youngest is sort of the free spirit, much to the consternation of the oldest in the family, right? But if you pay close attention to this passage, 
You pay close attention to the story that Jesus told. And this is where I think those of you who think that you know this story, you're like, oh, I know the parable of the prodigal son. Those of you who think you know this story, I think this is where you're going to be surprised. If you'll notice, both of the sons are lost at some point in the story. Did you notice that? The youngest son, I mean, it's like that's, he's lost early in the story. That's obvious. We all know he's lost. But what most people fail to see, because it's so subtle, is that the oldest son is lost at the end of this story. Did you notice? He's outside, in the cold, fuming, mad at his father, screaming at his father when there's a party going on inside. And he's just furious at his dad for holding this party for this irresponsible son who blew, you know, half the inheritance and still the dad's holding the party for him. And that, that ticks him off. He's so lost, in fact, that we don't even know if he, goes, if he ever goes into the party because Jesus doesn't reconcile that part of the story for us, does he? It's important, the reason I mention this, it's important to see that both sons are lost because Jesus is teaching us two lessons through these sons. And and I want to, let me just highlight them for you this way. Each son represents one. Each son represents a way to be lost from God. Okay? That's one of the things that he's teaching us. Each son in this story represents a way to be lost from God. The second thing that he teaches us is that each son represents a way that people try to find happiness and fulfillment in life. Sort of a a philosophy of living, okay? Of how to find meaning and happiness and fulfillment in life. Let's go, let's let's do the first one first. Let's talk about the fact that each son in the story represents a way to be lost from God. Go back, if you would, into the context. Go back to verses 1 and 2. And I want to, I just want to look at the context of this story again. I want you to notice that Luke says... In verses 1 and 2, he, he mentions two groups that were there. He says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's verse 1. That's one group. But then he says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there too. And they were the ones that muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Interesting, interestingly, just as there are two sons in the story, there are two groups of people that are around when Jesus tells the story. Tax collectors and sinners, who, by the way, correspond to the younger brother in this story. The tax collectors and sinners, I mean, they're, they're, they're the people who have rejected all of the traditional religious standards and the community standards of right and wrong. They're out, woohoo, living wild and free, and, you know, they're doing their own thing, and if it feels good, do it. That, that's, that's their thing. That's the, that's the tax collectors and the sinners, Okay? They're the younger brother in the story. Younger brother represents them. Okay. The second group in the story are the Pharisees and the teachers of the Mosaic Law. Okay. These are religious leaders, and they correspond. Which brother do you think they correspond to? I want to see how smart you guys are. Which one? Older, that's right. They correspond to the older brother. You guys are really smart. There's only two brothers, but you got it right, and we'll stick with that. 
Uh, these guys, you know, so they, they're the ones that stuck to the traditional relig- religious standards. They stayed home with the Father because it's the right thing to do. They pray a lot. They want you to know they pray a lot. They study the Bible a lot. They want you to know they study the Bible a lot. Now, let me ask you this. Which group would you assume would be most naturally drawn to Jesus, the religious group or the irreligious group? Now, don't tell me what you think I want to hear. Uh, which, which group do you think would be most naturally drawn to Jesus? Jesus is a, he's a religious leader, right? Which group do you think would be most drawn to him? Well, you'd think the religious people. But guess what? It was the irreligious people that were always the most drawn to Jesus. They were always hanging around him, going to dinner with him, inviting him to parties, inviting him into their homes, which actually offended. It offended the religious leaders. The religious leaders, they, they would say about Jesus, they, they, would, they would call him a glutton and a drunkard. That, that was, that was what they, how they referred to Jesus because he hung around with them. Which is why, if you will notice, back in verses 1 and 2, if you will notice, even though there are two groups listening when Jesus tells the story, there is one group to whom Jesus directs this story. says in verse 3, it says, Jesus told them, the them that he's referring to from the context is the last group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law represented by the older brother in this story. So Jesus is telling this to the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and he's using the older brother to represent them. And the reason that he tells this story is that he wants the older brother types he wants, those that are, he wants the people that are always loyal and who've always done the right thing and they, they follow the rules and they pray a lot and they go to seminary and they stayed home and they stayed close to dad and mom. He wants them to look at their souls and realize that they are blinded by their self-righteousness and that they are blinded by their religiousness. Now, here's my guess. My guess is that if you've heard this story taught before, that's not how you've heard it taught. My guess is that if you've heard this story taught before, you hear it taught as primarily a heartwarming story about a wayward younger son who finally comes to his senses, returns home to his father, and his father greets him, and everybody weeps, and it's wonderful, and it's heartwarming, and all of that. And that is part of the story here. But if you pay very close attention to this story, Heartwarming is not the effect that this story had on people. And in fact, if you just look at the end of the story, look at the older brother at the end of the story. How, where's he at at the end of the story? He's furious. He's out in the cold and he's railing in public at his dad. And that's, the exact, that's exactly the effect that this story had on the people to whom Jesus was telling it, the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And so what Jesus is doing when he tells this story about a younger brother and an older brother but directs it at the older brother, what Jesus is doing is he's turning everything that you and I thought we knew about Christianity, he's turning it completely upside down and he's showing that both sons, both sons in the story are lost in the sense that they're both alienated from the father. The youngest is lost because of his destructive self-centeredness but the oldest is lost because of his self-righteous religiousness. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yeah, both are lost. But guess what? What Jesus wants them to understand 
Oh, he's speaking to religious people. He wants them to understand that they, the older brothers, the, the, the religious people, are more lost than the younger brothers. And do you know why they're more lost? Is because they don't think they're lost. Each son in the story represents a way to be lost from God. But the older brothers are more lost because they don't think they're lost. Okay, the, the other part of this, you know, I told you that Jesus, there's two things that Jesus wants to teach us, and that is that you know, each son represents a way to be lost from God. But I also said that, that each son represents a way to find happiness and fulfillment in life, a way that people try to find happiness and fulfillment in life, right? And I want to, I want to just show you how that works. So I'm going to start with the younger son again, okay? The text says in verse uh, 18, text says that the youngest son... Um, let me just find it here. He says, uh, he says the youngest son took his, um, oh, where is it? Here we go. Okay, he said, he said, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, uh, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be worthy to call your son. Make me like one of your hired men. I'm sorry, that's after he comes back. What he says is, is that he's going to take all of the wealth that he has, his portion of the estate, he's going to set off for a distant country, and it says that he engaged in wild living, which included prostitutes, right? So this younger son jettisons all of the traditional and cultural mores of the day, and he says, he says I'm going to determine what is right and wrong for myself. I don't need anybody to tell me what's right. I don't need anybody to tell me what's wrong. I'll do that on my own. I want to be able to live the way I want to live, which is a very popular philosophy that many people have today, isn't it? There are no absolutes. Uh, truth is relative. You determine uh, what's true. Nobody else determines what's true for you. You do, do it for yourself. A guy by the name of William Williman, who was, uh, he's a professor at Duke Divinity School. He calls this particular philosophy of life, he calls it expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And he means that everybody comes up with their own sense of what's the best way to live, and then they, they just ex, you know, they express it on their own. I mean, it's like their way, and it's not going to be anybody else's way. Expressive individualism. Now, let me tell you what expressive individual, individualism looked like, uh, like back in the 70s. Back in the 70s, expressive individualism looked like love beads and bell bottoms and pot and free sex. That was the 70s. In the 80s, it looked like disco and leisure suits and cocaine and free sex. That, that was the 80s. Uh, anybody here wear a leisure suit back in the 70s or 80s? Anybody do that? I raised my hand because I had two. I had two leisure suits back then. In the 90s, it looked like grunge and pot and free sex. And in the 2000s, it was rap and ecstasy and friends with benefits and free sex. And then now, these days, you know what's happened? It's, all, it's gone all the way back to the 70s. That's how it always does that. It's gone all the way back to the 70s. Expressive individualism, that's what William Willimon calls it. It, it. Everybody determines for himself what's right or what's wrong. Uh, and that's the youngest son in the story. He's like, I'm going to do it my way. I don't want my dad telling me what's right. I don't want my dad telling me what's wrong. I want to determine those things for myself. I want to live the way I want to live. That's expressive individualism. That's the youngest son in the story. Now, the older son takes a completely different 
approach. He takes a completely different philosophy to life and to finding happiness and fulfillment. His is the way, not of expressive individualism, but his is the way of moralism. Moralism. And this is one of the other, this is one of the two ways that people try to find fulfillment and happiness in life. One is expressive individualism, one is moralism. Moralism is, is the idea of be good and be responsible and be a good citizen and be a good person and go to church and you do the right thing. And these people who practice moralism, uh, if that's their philosophy, they grow up and they're very responsible citizens. They become doctors and lawyers and accountants and engineers and pastors, and and, uh, they often stay close to home, and they care for their aging parents while their younger siblings are gallivanting around the world, probably on the West Coast in California somewhere. These are the two basic philosophies that people have about finding happiness and fulfillment in life. Now look, again, I realize we're painting with broad brushstrokes. Some people, uh, there, there are people that probably go back and forth, and there are some older brother types that have some younger brother secret behaviors. But really, there are only two approaches to finding happiness and fulfillment in life. Those are the only two ways that people try to find it. And I want to just, let me ask you this question. In my 23 years of experience in ministry, which group do you think is represented more in church world than the other? Do you think there are more older brother types in church world? Or do you think there are more younger brother types in church world? Way more older brother types in church world. Which is probably why when this story is taught, it's usually taught about the younger brother rather than it is the older brother, right? Let me ask you this, though. Which side do you think Jesus is on? Do you think he's on the younger brother's side? Or do you think he's on the older brother's side? Trick question. He's on neither side. He's saying, both of these boys are lost. Both of them are wrong. Both of them have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he does make the point, by the way the story ends, and I said this a moment ago, that religious moralism is more spiritually lethal than expressive individualism, in part because it seems so right. Jesus tells this to the older brother types who are usually represented in church world. And he says, I want you to know that what you struggle with is more spiritually lethal than the younger brother types. That's not how you've normally heard this story told, is it? Would you, would you notice something else? Just notice this this. Notice this. On the one hand, it seems like these two guys, these two boys, these two sons, it seems like that they're very far apart in their approach to life, doesn't it? But on the other hand, there's more similarity between these two guys than appears on the surface. And I'm going to say it this way. Just let me say it this way. Both sons want to use the father. Did you notice that? Both sons in the story want to use the father. The younger son wants his 
inheritance, and he wants it now, and he wants to spend it the way he sees fit. He doesn't want the father's control over his life. The older son, though, he wants the inheritance too. But his way to get the inheritance is to stay home, to obey. The unspoken belief that the older son has about his dad is, you owe me. Dude, I stayed home. I've been here. I've been responsible. I've been taking care of you, taking care of the property. You owe me. Both want what the father can give, but neither of them wants the father for himself. And of course, the father in this story represents God the father, right? And he's saying, most people, he's saying, he's saying this is how they approach it. They, they both want something from God, but they, but they don't want God himself. And Jesus exposes those of you older brother types here in the room. And I, I, boy, I would tell you, I would be an older brother type. Jesus exposes something in us in this story. And, I, and I'll get to it by asking you this question. Because he, he makes us ask this question about ourselves. How much of your moral and religious lifestyle, how much of that is lived out of genuine love for God? And how much of it is nothing more than a desire to get God to do what you want him to do? That would be a great question for you to ask this afternoon. Older brother types, do you believe that if you obey God, if you follow all the rules, that it obligates him to bless you? Do you believe believe that it obligates God to answer your prayers the way that you want him to answer your prayers, that he'll keep tragedy out of your life? That's That's his obligation as long as you follow all the rules. If that's what you believe, you may be very guilty of worshiping God more out of the desire to control and obligate God than out of genuine love for Him. Here's a way, here's a, here's a way that you can know the answer, by the way. Here's a, here's a way that you can know the answer. What's your motive in your worship of God? Here's, here's how you can know. When things go wrong in your life, like, like if tragedy hits, when things go wrong, people who obey God out of just strictly desired to obligate him. When things go wrong, people get, those people get furious with God because they think, man, I have held up my part of the deal and you haven't held up your part of the deal, God. Or here's the other side of that. Here's the other side. If they haven't, like if, you, if you're one of those older brother types and you haven't lived up and you know in some way, shape, or form that you haven't lived up to God's standards, here's what happens. When tragedy comes, you are sure the tragedy is your fault and that, you are being, that God is punishing for you for it and you become furious with yourself. That's how you know if you're obeying God merely to get control over him. There's something in all of us, every one of us, uh, the Bible calls it sin. There's something in all of us that wants to, we, we want to believe that we don't need a Savior. And that's the heart of older brother religious moralism. It's all cloaked in doing good and being a good person and being a rules follower and all of that. But the reality is that older brothers, just like younger brothers, don't want to believe they need a Savior 
who has to rescue you solely on the basis of grace, not on the basis of what you do and how good you are. Now, I realize that there are older brother types who genuinely do believe in Jesus Christ, but functionally, the way that you live your life, functionally, the controlling reality of your life is that Jesus is not so much your Savior as much as he is your helper, or he's your example, or maybe he's your inspiration, but he's not your Savior because you spend your life counting on yourself and on your goodness and how much you pray, and how much you read the Bible, how much you are a good person, and how religious you are, and all of that. And instead of counting on Jesus as a Savior, you're counting on yourself. Here's the gospel. I said it this way last week. You, every one of you, older brother types, younger brother types, all of us, you are more sinful and broken than you ever dared believe. And at the same time, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Did you notice the father in this story who represents God? Did you notice him in the story? He's always searching and he's always pleading with both the younger brother and the older brother types. He's saying, come in, come in. He's looking for the younger brother. He's pleading with the older brother. Because that's God. That's his great love for humanity. Which are you? Are you a younger brother or are you an older brother? We're going to speak to both in this series. But let me just, I want to close today just with this. Older brother types, how do you respond to this passage today? How do you respond to what we've talked about today? Let me just put it to you this way. Let the cross of Christ be an offense to you. If you're an older brother type, let the cross of Christ be offensive to you. And what I mean by that is this. Realize one of the hardest things to come to grips with in Christianity, older brothers, is that you need to be saved from your best prayer and your most devout study and your greatest sacrifices and your best good deeds. You need saved from all of those things. Because the Bible says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. You need saved from all of that stuff. Now, that's not how you near, normally hear this story, right? But that's how Jesus tells the story to older brothers because he wants them to know that they are counting so much on their self-righteousness and moralism that they're not counting on Jesus as their Savior. You can't avoid Jesus as your Savior. Both brothers in the story are wrong. Both are deeply loved. But the most lost are the older brother types. And I would just close by saying this. Older brothers, you need to come in from the cold and warm yourselves at the fire of God's grace. Not your good works.